Good morning, and I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, before I get into my message, I just wanted to give you guys a brief update on how things are going at Casas. Uh, we had a big milestone since the last time I was here last summer. We completed our building project that we had started in El Paso. For those who hadn't heard, maybe we're on the missions team where I've been filling them in along the way. About five or six years ago, we started this building program with the goal of being debt free. Our office space at the time was about 2,000 square feet, and it was a 120-year-old adobe block house with walls about two foot thick, and which was common way back in the day in the middle of the Southwest. That's how they built their buildings. But we filled up every inch of space, and we were able to move in in February into 8,500 square feet, a new office facility that's going to help us as we launch and grow. So we're excited. I know that some people here were praying with me for that to come to completion because it was, we were in over our heads at time, it felt like. But um, also another big piece of news was Nicaragua, as John had talked about as being one of our locations. Fayetteville was the first group to build down there just a couple years ago. And then the government closed their doors and put some very tight restrictions on who could enter and couldn't. And it's the last location that we have that's finally come back online. And so starting October 1st, we'll have groups back building with us in Nicaragua and all of our locations will be in, in service. We'll be able to help the families. And uh, one thing just to tell you is, even though the last two years have been difficult and quite honestly impossible for some groups to get to the countries, in Nicaragua alone, we were able to build 17 houses over the last two years with the pastors in those communities and with our staff that was on the ground there. And so we've been holding on. We've been trying to tread some water to make it to the point where we could open it back up for groups that would want to come. And so thank you for praying for that with us. And hopefully in the next few months and years, we'll see a lot of fruit come from there. I know Carlos is, he's probably dying to get down there with us and build a few houses and, and get the ministry back started that Fayetteville started a couple years ago. Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read in Psalm 1. And while you're turning there, just to give you a little bit of backstory so you know what this psalm is all about, Psalm was written by David and some anonymous authors. So David's accredited with about 73 of the psalms in here. The other 49 or so are from anonymous individuals. David wrote the first ones that we have, and before he died, they collected the first 44, 41 psalms that we have in this book, and those were attributed to him. Then over the next 600 years, some more psalms were written by the Israelites, and they were compiled into additional books. But over that 600-year period, when it finally ended around 400 B.C., we were left with the book of Psalms that kind of sits right in the middle of our Bible today. And this first one is the one that we're going to look at. The reason this first one is important is because it sets the tone for all the rest of the Psalms. The Jewish leaders and theologians who studied this back thousands of years ago said that this one chapter described all of the Jewish theology wrapped up in just this one, this one idea, and that is that righteous people, godly people, are blessed and happy, and ungodly people their lives are ruined and destroyed. And that is the idea that the, the Israelites, the, the nation of Israel followed was, God, we want to be righteous so that you can bless us and prosper us. 
and we don't want to be destroyed by our enemies. And that's how they lived. And so there's some things in here today that I want to read and I want to share with you and hopefully encourage you because I know that my family is thankful for this church. As John was saying, it's been 21 official years that I've been a missionary full-time with Casas, a few before that on trips and as an intern. But the anchor, the bedrock, the thing that's made it go is the support of this, this body of believers right here. And so there's not a month that goes by when I don't get my support report that I see the name Fayetteville Christian Church, and I thank God for each one of you. And so today, my goal is to, to respond to you as my gratefulness and hopefully encourage you with this word that David wrote 3,000 years ago. So let's read it together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither and whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we see in this psalm that it's telling us about good and evil. It's talking about life and death, blessing and curse, how to be in happiness or how to live a life of ruin and despair. We're going to start in the first few verses right there in, in verse number two, where David's giving these warnings to us. And the very first one he says is, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? Now that wicked word there is the Hebrew word rasa, and it means to not be in covenant with God, not be in a right relationship with him. And you live according to your passions. So when I think of the word wicked, I think of the culture that I live in and, and what that word means. It's generally reserved for the worst people of our society, like the worst world leaders who've committed atrocities, the evil people who are in prison for the rest of their lives, people who, who do heinous, awful things. They get to wear the tag of wicked. But this word that's being used here is going much further than that. It's going much broader than that. And it's saying it's anyone who is not in a covenant relationship with the Lord is wicked. And it's telling us, do not walk in the path with those people. Well, why is that? Because at the very end, he tells us, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so obviously, if we're stating the obvious here, what's the commercial with Captain Obvious? If you are walking on a path with someone who is wicked, you are heading to the same destination. And if you don't stop where that person is walking, you will end up in the same place that they will end up. And where does it tell us that they will end up? They will perish. They'll be destroyed. And so David's laying out this warning to us. Then what I found most interesting as I read this time and time again was that the second one he says is do not stand in the way of sinners. Now what, what, I, what I think David is doing here is he's escalating as he's speaking the warnings to the people that he's writing in his psalm. The first one is, you know, don't, don't walk. And the second one is don't stand. 
The word stand here, we know means to be, needs to be identified with that person. My mom told me this when I was a kid all the time, and then later in life I learned that, well, Paul actually said it in 1 Corinthians, but mom took credit for it. But 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So think about standing and where you're at. It's the meaning that he's saying here is that the things around you, how you spend your time, what you're doing, what you're listening to, what you're watching, where you're at in that moment will influence you. You say, well, no, it's not going to really influence me. Like, I know what I believe, and I'm going to stand strong, and I'm going to stand firm. I remember when I was in middle school, probably, and we lived in Peachtree City, and Dad and I were at the Publix on 54, and we were picking up some groceries, and I asked him as we were at the checkout counter, Dad, can I get this candy bar? You know, the checkout counter with all the candy and the magazines, and he's like, of course, he tells me no. I don't need a candy bar, but I like candy bars, still do. And so when we were walking out, he tells me, Dad was in sales his whole life, so he could sell anything, he could talk to anybody. He was, that was his specialty. And he says, do you know that the candy at the checkout aisle is packaged and the colors and the way they write it is intended to get you to pick it up and take it? And they put it right there at the checkout so that it's the last thing you put on the belt before you buy it and walk out the door. And that candy has a higher profit rate, and it also is more sales that they're going to generate. And they put it while you're standing there, and it's tempting you to take it. It's all by design to get you to buy it. And I'm 44, and so it's been well over 30 years that he told me that story, and it stuck with me. Why in the world would somebody try to manipulate me to buy something. Well, we call that marketing. It sounds better than manipulation. But at the end of the day, these companies know if they put this right there where we're standing, that after a while or some of the time, we will pick it up and take it. This is the illustration that David's laying out, that if you stand in the company of sinners, eventually you're going to take some of that. And he's warning us to go to that, not to, not to go that path, not to stand in there. He's warning us to be careful to run from those things. And then as it ratchets it up, he gets to the last one, which he says, or sit in the seat of mockers. And so I was thinking, what, what exactly is a mocker? And, you know, mocker in my family means if one kid says something, the other one repeats back exactly what they say in a tone that really makes the other child really upset and fight breaks out, it seems like, in our house. That's what we think it means. But a mocker, by the biblical definition, is somebody who sits and is accepted and becomes virtually unidentifiable from an evil person. The mockers hold on to nothing sacred. They scoff at God and all that's associated with them to completely identify with their proud, sinful, and evil behavior. Now, I know it's not, it's taboo sometimes to say in this culture and in this church, but if you need an illustration of what it looks like for someone to sit in the company of mockers, you don't need to look any further than the news this week. Because what's happening in our country and our culture is that there is one huge group of people that believe it's okay to kill an innocent child and take their life. 
those people in their biblical definition of what David saw and warned against, they are sitting in the company of mockers. And the thing that makes it most scary is that they, not only do they enjoy it, but they choose to do it. And David's warning us on that. Now, some of y'all probably have grandkids or, or had, remember when you had kids or great-grandkids, and when you think about the little, the tiny ones that they're just starting to walk and talk and understand and interact, you tell them, hey, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't, don't do that. And then they don't do it. Why don't they do it? Because they trust you and they, they don't know a lot of stuff, so they, they think we're just going to listen to what you say. But when they get to be, I don't know how old, like 12 or 13 or 11, I got a 9, 11, and 14-year-old, and you tell them not to do that, they always follow up with why. Well, why can't I do that? And you got to explain to these kids, like, this is why you can't do that. So David, what he's done right here in this psalm is he's told us what to, what to run from, what to turn from, and then he's going to switch it and he's going to tell us why. And I love it when he does that because, you know, sometimes you just want some reasoning behind what is the benefit for me if I don't do these things. And so what does it say there? It says, well, the very first word, the very first sentence says, blessed is the man. He goes on to give the warnings, but then he picks up. So let's read it like this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law, he meditates day and night. So what David's saying is the godly man, the one who understands the Lord, he meditates on his word. Here's something interesting that I didn't find in a book or I didn't see anything, but when I was reading it and, 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 and working through it, I found interesting that if you wanted to be ungodly, it was who you associated with. But if you wanted to be godly, it wasn't who you associated with. It was how you meditated on the word of the Lord. Because God knows that man is not perfect. And while scripture talks about iron sharpening iron, and we see Jesus with his disciples and Paul with Barnabas, and we see all the great groups of men that went out together. And, and while there is value in that community, there is no replacement for meditating on God's word, for soaking in his word and thinking about his laws and his goodness, that that is the way to avoid the destruction that comes around us. So the Hebrew word that's written here, if you read it in the original language, for meditate is called haga. And haga means to mummer or read out loud. So John gave you guys a, a little intro to what I do for my ministry. This is not my day-to-day -day ministry. I don't preach on the weekends. I'm not a pastor. I don't, I don't run a church. I go to a church just like you, and we're involved in our church, but I don't write sermons. I do it four or five times a year. And my process, which is probably completely different than Andrew's and any other full-time pastor who does this, it's a very slow process for me because it's not my normal stuff. I'm more putting a house together. We could do that quick. But when it comes to writing a sermon, it takes me a little bit longer. And so what I do is I pray and I read and I try to find a passage of scripture that I feel like God would want me to share. And once I kind of narrow that down, I go and I read some of my commentary books, like 10 or 12, and I read the sections that are just on that one passage. And I'll take notes about what strikes me, and I'll put them in a little 
document, and so I'll have all these, I don't know, four pages of notes about this one passage of Scripture. And when it's all said and done, I'll take it and I'll organize it according to how it flows with the text. But when all is said and done, the last step I do is I take this outline. And I'll go, and it makes my wife really upset with me. She doesn't like this part, but it's just my process. I will take and get in a room, or I'll get in a car, and I'll be where nobody else is, and I will just begin to read out loud the notes that I've written in this, in this sermon that I'm going to prepare. It's in those moments that I'm murmuring or I'm speaking that some of the things come off the paper and some of the things come into my heart that will go down on the paper. And in the end, I'm left with hopefully 20 minutes, not 30 minutes, because people didn't want to go to lunch, or hopefully I'm not left with 15 because then it's too short, but I'm left with what is an understanding of the scripture that I'm going to be teaching and talking about. And that scripture, what it has done is it's come alive in my heart. And David knows that because he's read the law. And the law is what he delights in. And he knows it's what connects him to the Father. And it's his secret key that he's giving the people around him to know that if you want to be godly and you want to see who he is, then you're going to have to spend time in his word. You're going to have to read his word. You're going to have to do that. And what is the illustration that, that David gives? He says that we'll be like a tree that's planted by a stream. So David lived in modern Israel, Palestine, and in that area it is almost identical to El Paso, Texas, which is where our family lives. It's a dry, deserty climate. It's hard to grow anything. It's sandy. It's hot a lot of times of the year. It doesn't get really cold. And in that area, when David's writing this, he knows that people understand some illustrations. And so he says a tree, a person who does these things, is like a tree who's planted by a stream. But just like where we live, we only get nine inches of rain a year. And right now is our, we call it our monsoon season. We're going to get like three inches of rain. But it's, it rains in June and July for a little while. And not like the rains here. It's you know, it rains for 30 minutes and then it's done. But there are streams that will pop up and they will, there'll be some vegetation around them. But in the dry seasons, those streams are bare. And it was the same way in Palestine. And David knew that the word that he is using here for streams is actually irrigation canals. Because the way that they would grow food and the way that they would have fruit and the way that they would feed water livestock and the way that they would, they would basically live as a society is they would take this stream, this river that was a mighty river, they would dig canals off of it to channel the water away to plant their crops next to. And so he's saying, you are going to be like a mighty tree planted by this stream, by this irrigation canal, because that river is the source. It is God himself who is helping grow and nourish that tree. One of the things that I think of when I think of this story of watering a tree and being planted by God, it takes me back to when I was in the, I think I was in the first or second grade, and we lived on the east side of Atlanta, and we went to this church, um, well, we didn't go to the church, but I went to school there, and in the summer, they had a vacation Bible school, and it was a, 
church was called Bible Baptist Church. You had a real Bible name, Bible Baptist, strong Christian name. And we went to school there, and we were at VBS, and they had VBS in the morning. Remember when they used to do VBS in the morning so the moms could have a week off during the summer from the kids? They don't do that for us, for moms and dads anymore. It's, we get them the whole summer. It's our punishment. But as I digress, it's, we, we are in this vacation Bible school. It's, it's Monday morning. We do worship and we sing songs. At the end of the worship, they tell us, like, close your eyes and bow your head. Is there anyone in here today who doesn't want to go to hell and instead wants to have eternal life and spend it with Jesus in heaven? And if that's you, raise your hand. And so I raise my hand, and then they say, if you raise your hand, we want you to get up from your seat and go to the back. And they had a vestibule in the back, and I, I go in the back, and, and there's a couple women back there, and they, they tell us, now that you've raised your hand, you're going to say this prayer after I say this prayer. And, and I prayed this prayer, and like, all right, you can go back to your seat now. And Tuesday came, and we did the same thing, and I raised my hand again, and I went back to the back, and I prayed that. This is a true story, okay? This is not borrowed from some other pastor. This is a true story. I go back in the back. Exact same thing happens. Wednesday comes. I'm sitting there, and they tell us, raise your hand. And what? Well, I raised my hand, and I went back. And before I got back there, one of the ladies met me, and she said, you don't need to come back here. You've already done it the other day. And once you've done it once, it's good. Well, I don't feel any different from Monday. I, to Wednesday feels like Tuesday, and Tuesday feels like Monday. And I do know that some one thing is that I don't want to go to hell, and I do want to go to heaven, but nothing's changed in my life for me to make it there. And what is happening in this moment is that I was being planted by God where he wanted me. And when you plant something... It doesn't go from a little plant like this to a mighty tree 40 or 50 feet tall or bearing fruit overnight. It doesn't even do it over months. It takes years before you plant something to really see the fullness of what it's designed and intended to be. And David's telling you this. He's telling me this, that this is not something we can rush this is not something that we can go and just do and it's going to happen tomorrow. No, you're going to have to be intentional about it. You're going to have to plant yourself. You're going to have to study his word. You have to meditate on his word. And, and really, what it's going to do for you is just help you to avoid evil. You're going to get closer to him, but you're going to avoid evil, which is the path that leads to destruction. Jesus paints a picture like this. He speaks my language on this one. It's in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 24 and 27, he talks about two builders who build houses. You know the story, right? It's, it's, it's the famous one of one builder built, Mr. Newby's nodding his head. He's a builder, so he knows this story very well. One builds on sand and one builds on rock. Now, I have built, I think, about, I don't know, 280-something homes in the time that I've been at Casas and Juarez, if you've been on a trip with us there, I mean, it's the desert. It's, it's 400 miles from any greenery in any direction, at least. We are literally in the desert. And some of the homes that I've built were just straight sand. Could have dug 15 feet down, and it would have been like you were on the, the beaches of Florida. 
that you weren't finding anything hard at all. And then there's some other homes that I've built that were in another part of the, the country, and the ground was so hard that the pickaxes we were using to try to dig the footers bent underneath. That's how hard the ground was. And one of the benefits of, of doing this full time is I get to go back and see these families and, and see how they're doing. And inevitably, when you go visit a house that's built on one of those really sandy, sandy lots, you will see that the rain and the wind has started to blow out from underneath the foundation. And you could see the bottom of the concrete on one corner. Now, the house isn't completely lost. That house can be maintained. They could put more dirt underneath it every time it rains and every time it storms and every time the wind blows hard. They can keep packing dirt to support that house, but it requires maintenance. But if you don't maintain anything and you just let it go, that house is absolutely one day going to literally fall. Part of it is going to fall because there will be nothing underneath it to support it. But when I've gone back to the houses that have been on straight ledge rock and I look at them, they look exactly like the first day I built them. And matter of fact, as the winds have come and the rains have gone, the only thing they have done is wash away any of the loose dirt that you could just see the concrete and the rock that basically forms one. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying that we have a choice to build on sand or to build on rock. And it's ours, and, and what we choose to build on matters. David puts it in this way. He talks about the wicked is like the chaff that blows away in the wind. The authors of the Bible often use that with wheat, that that part that's worth nothing, they tear off and it falls on the floor of the threshing room. And when any slight breeze comes in, it blows away. It's viewed as worthless, meaningless, it's just fleeting. That's what the Bible calls people who do not live a godly life. But instead, the ones who follow him are like a tree that's planted by a water source that will bear fruit, will provide shade, will provide beauty, that people around them can enjoy. That is the person who lives a life. And there's a choice for everyone that we must make, and there's just truthfully no escaping what we're going to do. I know a lot of people, when I think about the 30 years that I've been an adult and able to understand, and I've come across a lot of prosperous people, Christian prosperous people that, that David is talking about the life they can, they can live. And there's something that almost every one of them have in common, that they've been planted in the same community or the same job or the same business. They've been planted in the same family for their entire life. And only because they were planted there were they able to truly flourish the way God intended them to for his design. And so today, that's my prayer for you. My encouragement for you is that meditate on the word of the Lord because it is our key. It is our strength. It is the way that we can connect to the Father. It's also our tool to protect us from the evil that is out there in this world. Would you pray with me?